It's so cold. Cold outside, cold inside, cold in my head. Am I the only one seeing this? Feeling this? It's always dark. Holidays are supposed to be, I don't know, something other than this. This never-ending feeling, this perpetual cold and dark. Wow, well, Happy New Year. (laughs) That was a real pick-me-up, that one. Who makes those things? Goodness gracious. Cold and dark. This is the most depressing. What in the world? This is New Year's Eve. Aren't we supposed to be like making all of our wonderful plans for the incredible year that 2018 is going to be? Yes, we are, right? If you believe in unicorns and pots of gold at the end of the rainbow... But if it's 2017 and you live in a rust belt city with lake effect snow and your city is known for hosting a company that makes film for non-digital cameras, (laughs) your life forecast might not be looking so good, right? This is a time of year where in actuality it might be kind of rough. It's possible that coming off of Christmas... There are lots of people in our culture that are still just like with this glow of the magical season of joy and cheer. But for lots of people, Christmas wasn't that great. In fact, it was terrible. And your plans for New Year's Eve are looking even worse. And the snow that's falling that's so beautiful for many people is just one more annoyance in your life that you have to get over. In fact, you're probably watching online right now because you couldn't get out of your driveway. Must be nice. They uh, told me that uh, I asked and they said that it was technologically impossible for me to preach from my couch. Um, It's a little disappointed. But anyway, for some people, there's so little about this time of year that's merry and bright. In fact, there's a medical condition that I really think kind of sums this up um, and it's especially potent this time of year. It is named SAD literally sad. It's an acronym for seasonal affective disorder, and it's the onset of depression that occurs with the change in seasons. Symptoms of sad include fatigue, depression, hopelessness, and social withdrawal, and it's most common in the fall and winter months. Honestly, it is not at all hard to see why this exists. Why? Well, because in the fall and winter, it is cold and dark literally all of the time especially in western New York. I mean, seriously, it can feel impossible to like see the sun with zero clouds. Like, I just want to see the sun again to remember what it feels like to have the warmth of it on your face, right? And people find themselves depressed and socially withdrawn even when they're around people at the holiday season. They're in a crowd of jolly folks, but they're feeling alone. When our culture says you're supposed to be snuggling up with the people that you love with a cup of hot chocolate in a Hallmark movie, they're feeling isolated. And my my point in all of this is simply to say not everyone is feeling magical at this time of year. People are feeling lonely, cold, and sad. 
And I think it's important for us to recognize that loneliness is a powerful reality. Uh, think about it. Solitary confinement is punishment no matter what kind of a criminal you are. You could be the burliest of criminals. That's punishment. And now everyone defines isolation probably a little differently. There are some extroverts in the room who define isolation as um, any 10-minute period that doesn't involve a casual conversation with another human. And then there are some introverts who you can go like two or three days before you even notice that you haven't talked to anyone. Um, I'm not one of those. But we all know that to feel totally isolated, to feel rejected, to feel ignored or overlooked is devastating. And it's not an easy time of year for a lot of people. Loneliness is real. Loneliness is powerful. And it's common. So for those of us who are here today who, who claim to be Christ followers, who call Northridge home, and, and you're committed to following after Christ, I think the question that we need to ask about this reality in our lives and in our culture is, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this? This is the question we should really be asking about everything in life. And if you're here today and you're not sure about Christianity, you're getting a jump start on your New Year's resolution, and you want to go to church more in 2018, and you thought if you started a day early, you'd get like bonus points, um, you do, by the way. I'm pretty sure I checked. You do get bonus points. But um, we're going to be asking this question. And if you come and you consider Northridge a place that you want to check out, we're going to be asking this question all the time because we're convinced that the Bible is God's guidebook for our life. And we're going to be asking, what does the Bible say about my reality or my current condition? The Bible doesn't mention seasonal affective disorder. Okay, It's not in there. But it does say some things about the nature of loneliness. And here at Northridge, we have worked hard to take the principles that we see from the Bible about relationships and loneliness, and we've put them together to give us an extraordinarily profound and what I think is simple way to live out what the Bible says and what it calls us to do. And we're going to look at that together, and we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So if you would, open your Bibles, however you access the Bible, um, to Ecclesiastes 4. If you want to use one of our Bibles, that's on page 541. We're going to see what kind of a solution the Bible offers to loneliness. And I do want to introduce myself. My name is Aaron Hickson. I'm our Henrietta campus pastor. I want to give a big shout out to my home campus out in Henrietta. Hope you guys are doing well and that you are all, all able to um, engage with our service this morning and get out in time before Star Wars begins. Same thing in Greece. Um, if you stick around, you might be able to just stay and watch the movie. I didn't say that. Um, we're going to get kicked out of Regal. Okay. Um, also, our Webster campus and those joining online, those here in Aronicoit, we are glad that you're with us um, this morning. But as you're turning to Ecclesiastes, I just want to say, Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. It's one that's not put together like other books of the Bible. Um, and so I want to give us a little bit of context for it. Um, it's part of what is called wisdom literature. It's a genre in the Bible, and it requires a certain kind of interpretive lens we kind of have to put on as we approach the Bible. This book was written thousands of years ago by an ancient Israelite king. His name was Solomon. And the Bible elsewhere calls him the wisest person to have ever lived. And you can read why that's true in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 if you want to jot that down. It's a really cool story where God actually gives Solomon a divine level, nearly divine level of wisdom. So Solomon's the wisest man to have ever lived, not the smartest but the wisest. And the book of Ecclesiastes, he's essentially doing a journalism project. He's doing an expose on the human experience. And what he does is he tries everything. 
He experiments with everything. And he uses his wealth and his power and his prestige to experience a lot. And then he uses his wisdom and his observation skills to comment on it. And he just, everything he experiences, he's just writing about in this book called Ecclesiastes. And his results from this experiment are not the most encouraging, okay? Uh, For real, if you're depressed, I'm not sure I would recommend jumping into the book of Ecclesiastes unless you're planning to read the whole thing all the way through, because until you get to the end, like somewhere in the middle, you're like, bro, Solomon, this is rough. Like, he does not have a lot of good things to say. Solomon goes to some really dark places. And so that's a lens that we have to wear as we approach this book. In the end, if you stick with it, he has some incredible lessons that his wisdom allows him to give us about life and all kinds of things. But in the meantime, it can be a little bit dark. And we're jumping right into the middle in a section um, about friendlessness that Solomon writes um, in Ecclesiastes 4. So let's just jump in and see what he says, starting in verse 7. He says this. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Now, Solomon calls a lot of things meaningless in this book. It's a little bit of a theme. If you can pick up on it, the book's a little bit depressing, all right? So he says, this is meaningless. And here's what he describes. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes weren't content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Okay, so what do we have here? Solomon is making an observation about what he sees in the world in the midst of this expose project. And one of the things that he sees in the world is a man who is all alone. He has no family. He has no friends. What does Solomon think about this? Well, this guy is working his tail off. He is trying his dead level best to get as rich as he possibly can. He's on the treadmill of success. He's completely addicted to his job and to wealth building, and it just never stops. But then one day, Solomon catches this guy that he's watching in a moment of self-reflection. He actually slows down enough to ask the question, who is making me do this? What's my motivation for this? Whose college fund am I paying for right now? Who's in my will that's going to receive all my stuff when I die? And this guy that Solomon is observing has a horrible realization that's left unsaid in the text here. The conclusion that this guy comes to is that he has no one. He has zero meaningful human connections. He's rich, he's exhausted, and he's all alone. What a crushing moment for this guy. What complete devastation. He has broken his back for a cause that has given him nothing in return. And he has no one to share his achievements with. So what's Solomon's take? From here on out, he's just kind of commenting on what he sees. What does he say about this kind of loneliness and depression? I'm kind of hoping he says something encouraging, positive, that's really going to help this guy. No. Here's what he says. This too is meaningless a miserable business. Wow. Okay, so what does Solomon say about being lonely? What what does he have to say? He says this, lonely is miserable. That's what Solomon has to contribute to this. And man, how true is that, right? I mean, it doesn't take a wisdom wizard, wizard to figure that out. We feel that. When we feel alone, we feel miserable. And it's just like, wow, that's so profound. Thank you, Solomon. This message is so encouraging so far. Let's keep this up. What else do you have up your sleeve, jolly old Saint Solomon? 
Ecclesiastes 4.9, he says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. What's happening here? It sounded like Solomon just started a love song. Like I'm expecting Taylor Swift to start singing any second. What's going on? Solomon is commentating on what the loneliness of the guy that he was observing leads him to believe about the world. It's like you're getting stream of consciousness and he's concluding that in life and business, it's better to have a partner. It's better to have someone that you're working alongside of and living alongside of. Excuse me, why is that? Well, he says it's because you have a better return on your labor. Teamwork, you've got collaboration. Many hands make light work. It's just straight up easier. You get better results. So Solomon, he's not saying, he's saying lonely is miserable, but lonely is also hard. That's what he's commenting on. He's saying when you're trying to go through life and get something done, Lonely is the harder way to do it. Um, it, This might not be a huge surprise. Um, I'm a people person. And so I like the collaboration. In my work life, I have found it's not just difficult for me to work alone. It's borderline impossible. Um, So I'm kind of quirky about my work environment. I do want it to be like silent because I'm not good at multitasking. But I I just love, if if there's somebody within shouting distance of my workspace, I'm, I'm pretty much good. And Mark Nelson, our Greece campus pastor, shout out Mark, and Nate Miller, our Webster campus pastor, shout out Nate, uh, our offices are basically right on top of each other. We basically share a wall. We're all like right there in this small confined space. And every once in a while, I'll just be working, working on something in my silence, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm just like, it's not uncommon for me to just yell like, Mark, or like Nate. And I don't have to yell. I mean, I could literally talk and they could hear me, but it's just this is the extrovert in me. And I get really excited. I'm like, hey, guys, I just, I want the collaboration. Like, hey, let me come show you this. Like, is this good? Is this okay? Like, hey, is what I'm working on good? And I just need that collaboration. So I'll just yell and like run into their offices with something. And, you know, I think we all probably, many of us feel that. That collaboration makes work easier. And they, they never yell for me. I wonder if I should read into that. Huh. We should talk about that this week. Anyway, the point Solomon is making is that lonely is hard. And that's true in life. Lonely is just hard. And let's continue what, seeing what Solomon says about loneliness. In verse 10, it says this. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. You remember, he's saying two is better than one. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how will one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. So what we have here are some scenarios that Solomon gives where it's better to have someone else around. Times when you are way better off if you've just got somebody who's nearby. And I think of an example of this in our culture is that guy, uh, Aaron Ralston, do you remember him? I think that's how you say his name. Hiker in Utah, the boulder falls, kind of traps his arm. He's all by himself. He has to do some drastic measures to get himself free, which I'm not going to describe because I'll vomit, you know, that story. Um, Imagine that same scenario if he had had somebody else with him. I mean, it's still terrible, right? Your, Your arm's still crushed by a boulder. It's not like it becomes fun, but... Within a few hours, they could have, you know, like helicopters and medical personnel and equipment and like people there to help do a rescue. They're probably not going to make a movie about that story if he had just had a friend there with him, right? That situation becomes significantly less dangerous, less hazardous if he just has someone with him. And that's really Solomon's point here in this section is that lonely is dangerous. 
Doing life, doing stuff on your own is honestly just straight up hazardous. Things that you can handle with another person, you can't handle alone. I mean, honestly, who's the picture of a person that you would think would be able to go it alone? How about the Lone Ranger? Turns out the Lone Ranger actually had Tonto. He wasn't even alone. I don't know why we call him the Lone Ranger. It's ridiculous, all right? That guy's not even alone. We can't do this alone. And I think we all recognize that there are things that are easier to do with others. Climbing a mountain with a partner is just safer. It's just the obvious way to go about it. But that's not the only reason that lonely is dangerous. Lonely isn't just dangerous because of the manpower that you lose by attempting to go alone. Lonely is dangerous because we tend to make poor decisions when we're by ourselves. When we make decisions that aren't checked and challenged by someone who isn't outside of the situation emotionally, it doesn't tend to end well. We get dangerous when we operate in a vacuum of loneliness where all of our decisions aren't being checked and evaluated by some people. Think about this. Some of the biggest regrets in your life, some of the biggest regrets in my life, were probably just one good friend away from never happening right? Because lonely is dangerous, and we tend to do stupid things when we don't have the advice of others. Lonely is dangerous. And there's one more thing that Solomon says about loneliness that kind of wraps this all up in verse 12, the end of verse 12. He says this, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What's this? Why are we talking about ropes all of a sudden? Well, He's making another point again that I think we intuitively know is true, and it's really simple. We are better together. We're better together. When you take a rope from a single strand to multiple strands and you twist them all together, you get a stronger rope, right? That's basic. That's obvious. And it's so true in our relationships as well. When we band together, we are better. We are stronger. We are more reliable, And I love what God says about the very first human. The very first human he created was all by himself. And here's what he says in Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. From the very beginning, God designed us in a particular way as humans. And the fact is, we weren't meant to be alone. That's just not how we were wired. Solomon noticed this. God designed it this way from the beginning. Lonely is hard. Lonely is miserable. Lonely is dangerous. And we weren't meant to be alone. Now, I do need to make a disclaimer, a couple things. First of all, you know, we need, ultimately what we need is God. And what we need is a relationship with him. But our life works out better when we're loving God and also loving others. That's how we're wired. And then another disclaimer would be, the fact that we weren't meant to be alone doesn't mean that we were all meant to be married. It doesn't mean that we were all meant to live in a house with all of our best friends around us all the time. It just means that God designed us to work best in the context of a relationship. Whether that's work relationships, family relationships, you know, friends, spouses, kids, parents, whatever. We are better together. And Solomon knew this. He was wise. He had explored human relationships. He had tried it all. He made lots of observations, and the observations he made about loneliness concluded with the fact that we are straight up better together. 
So let's just recap what we said so far this morning, just for a minute. We can acknowledge it is cold and dark out there. If you don't know that, you're probably watching online, okay? Um, Loneliness is a real and present danger in our culture. In the midst of all of this loneliness that can set in in the midst of a snowstorm, we need others. And we've seen the Bible echoes what our intuition guessed. We were not meant to be alone. And if you're sitting here this morning, and you're feeling lonely, that everything I've said so far has done nothing but frustrate you. Because you're sitting here saying, I know lonely is hard, I'm lonely. I know lonely is miserable because I'm feeling miserable. And so you might be saying like, okay, bro, like, can you say something that I don't already know? Can we say something that would actually be helpful rather than reiterating the reality of my situation? And I do want to help. The truth is, I do believe that I have something that can help, that we have something that can help. I'm convinced that I can give a solution for loneliness and sadness, the sadness that can be so powerful and dangerous this time of year, a solution that comes from our conviction as a church that we are better together. Since we believe that the Bible outlines very clearly that we were not meant to be alone, We have created an environment that is especially designed to meet that basic, human, God-given need. And the best solution that I know of to loneliness, the loneliness that we all experience, whether it's this time of year or at another time, the best solution I know of is something called community groups. And for the rest of the time that we have together, I am going to do my absolute best to convince every single person listening that they need to be in a community group by January the 14th when our next trimester begins, whether you are feeling lonely or not, okay? That's my clearly stated goal. Let's go for it. Here we go. At Northridge, we are convinced that life is better connected. That's why we have community groups in the first place. Life is better connected. And I just have to say this. You've got to hear this. You will never experience Northridge Church the way it was designed to be experienced if you are not in a community group. Let me say that again. I mean that with all of my heart. You will not experience Northridge Church the way it was designed to be experienced if you are not in a community group. And the best way for you to get started to getting plugged into a group is that you could text your name to the number that is now on the bottom of your screens. Whether you're watching online, it's in the notes section, on the program that you received and you walked in, it's on the bottom of those notes, it's on the back of those notes, and it's on the bottom of your screen. And we will know by Voodoo and Black Magic which campus you attend, and we will follow up with you this week. Seriously do it right now. Text your name to the number at the bottom of your screen like a straight-up infomercial. It's going to be there for the rest of the time. No shame, okay? Because you need to be in a group. Community groups, what are they? Well, first of all, let's just talk about what they are. Community groups are, um, okay, I have a really technical definition that I was going to say, but forget that. Community groups are a formalized group of friends, That's all they are, all right? We put a ton of man hours, a ton of thought and intentionality into community groups at Northridge. But at the end of the day, all we're trying to do is create a group of people who function like friends, who do what comes naturally to friends, which is caring about each other, helping each other grow, enjoying each other's company. It's a super simple concept, but it has an amazing solution to loneliness. 
And here's the thing, we really want people to join community groups, and so we try to make it as simple to participate and stay connected as we possibly can. So we don't run these community groups like all year long, 365 days a year. Community groups run in very short eight to 10 week trimesters, which we do three times a year. Eight to 10 weeks, three times a year. And when you sign up and you jump in to give it a shot, you're not signing your life away. You don't have to like sign in blood. There's no long-term commitment. You've got a simple on-ramp, and it's coming actually in just a few weeks. On January the 14th, we're beginning a new trimester, and it just runs until March. It's very simple to jump in. We've got groups every night of the week except for Saturday. We've got the child care available. They're organized by all kinds of things from location to life stage to day of the week. And you can choose a group that fits you and your schedule and your life stage. In fact, you can even go to our website, northridgerochester.com. And if you go to Next Steps and Community Groups, you will find a lovely map of the greater Rochester area that includes no snow and There's a bunch of dots representing every community group. You can click on it interactively and see when it meets and what time it meets and what life stage it is and contact the people who run it and you can get into the group on your own. It's so simple, okay? Or you can text the number at the bottom of your screen with your name. We will follow up with more information this week. You need to be in a community group. And if you text in the next five minutes, we'll include an extra trimester free. I hated that. That's awful. I'm never doing that again. Okay. Let's talk about how they work now, okay? Community groups. What does it look like? Well, the average community group at Northridge meets on a night of the week for about an hour and a half, and they have a very simple format. At first, they just hang out as a group, have free food, free coffee. Come on. Do you need anything more? Next, they'll go into a group discussion time. So that's guys and girls together uh, discussing. Then they'll typically split guys and girls, have a little bit more open sharing time, and spend some time in focused prayer, and that's it. That's the basic structure of what to expect if you were to attend a group. It's super low-key. It's super non-threatening, all right? What is their purpose? What's the purpose of community groups? Well, it's as simple as ABC. Let's jump into the three purposes. The first is apply the Bible. The first purpose of community group is to apply the Bible, We don't want to be people who just hear about what God says on Sunday and then forget about it during the week. We want to apply what we hear to our lives. And so most of our community groups at Northridge do sermon discussion. They talk about what was preached on Sunday. And that's a great way to ensure that what we've heard becomes something that we do. People often bring their sermon notes, um, you know, with little thoughts jotted down so they can remember um, what they heard. There are no wrong answers. It's very approachable and easy. But it's super important that one of the things that we do is apply the Bible. Because our goal in learning the Bible is not just to become smarter, more educated sinners. Our goal is to become more Christ-like, which involves us applying the Bible. That's our first purpose. Our second purpose is to build relationships That's right, literally, making friends is one of our goals. So it's no accident that community groups spend time hiking together and having sledding outings and doing white elephant gift exchanges and going ice skating and doing pumpkin carvings and going bowling, which sounds terrible because I hate bowling. But they're building relationships together. They're having fun. That's a really big deal to us. Like I said, we're just trying to create friendships that function biblically. So one of the best and the most fun parts about community groups is that we have to get to know each other. It's required. 
So if you're lonely this holiday season, you have so got to get into a community group. So grab your phone, text your name to the number at the bottom of your screen. You've got to get into a group. The third purpose of groups is to care for each other. Third purpose is to care for each other. This is when friendships cross from being just fun to being straight up necessary. This is when we start seeing the stuff that Solomon was describing in Ecclesiastes come to life. You know, someone falls and they need help up. This is what caring for each other is all about. And community groups are the best at this. They're amazing. Community groups do happy care activities like baby showers and bridal showers and kids' birthdays and graduation parties and taking the kids so you can finally have a date night. Those are the kinds of things groups do. But they also do the tough stuff together as well. They bring meals after an unexpected hospital visit. They write cards when you're having a rough week. They visit people in the hospital. They cry together when the marriage just isn't getting better. They call the police and provide shelter when it's clear he's becoming abusive. They just sit together in the living room after news of a miscarriage and say absolutely nothing. They put the details together for a family meal after a funeral. They gather up cash to help a community group member who's been out of a job for way too long. I mean, honestly, the stories we hear about community groups caring for each other, they're astounding. Those aren't random examples that I gave. Those are real examples. And it's nothing short of extraordinary And it honestly makes me wonder how anybody goes through life without 10 or 15 people in their life who care directly and specifically for them and would do anything that they need at the drop of a hat. How do you go through life without that? You need this. And if not right now, you will someday when life gets hard. Text the number at the bottom of your screen with your name. Get into a community group. Here's my final thought if, if you're not convinced yet. Why, why do you need to be in a community group? I think it's as simple as this. Because circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. And what do I mean by that? Well, you're here you know, at one of our campuses. You're listening to a sermon. You're with us on Sunday morning. You're part of the crowd. You sit in a row. You sing. You hear somebody talk. And then you leave. And you do the classic conversation in the lobby, how you doing good. Right? You're shoulder to shoulder with the people of our church, never seeing their faces, never building a relationship. You're stuck in a row. But the crazy thing is that the people that you're shoulder to shoulder with are incredible people who have amazing stories that would blow your mind, who have marriages that could help you with your marriage, who have words of encouragement that could heal your hurts. And the only way that you will get access to those incredible people with those God-given abilities is if the people who are on your left and your right and in front of you and behind you, if you can get into a circle with them. The only way you'll have access to their gifts is if you're sitting in a living room and just sitting and talking about your life and your hurts. What you'll find is this. Sunday morning is great. It really is. And rows are very helpful for some things. But when it comes to life change, circles are way, way, way better than rows. And if you want to grow, if you want to connect, if you want the people of our church to impact your life, or if you want to be used by God to impact the people of our church, you've got to get into a circle. Circles are better than rows. Why is that? Well, it's because life is better connected. And circles are where connection happens. And look, I'm not naive. I know you've got friends. 
I know that you hang out with people. You've got stuff that you have on your calendar. But if you're anything like me, when you're hanging out with your friends casually, it doesn't like commonly come up of like, hey, how are you doing it? Intentionally building your marriage? Or have you applied that sermon to your life this week? That's just not what we do when we're hanging out with friends. And so as a church, we don't think we hold the monopoly on creating friendships and spiritual growth environments. We believe that life is better connected. And so our aim is to make it as easy as possible for people to be connected. Most people don't spend their time with their friends applying the Bible to life. We just hang out. So we've taken friendship to the next level in community groups in order to create a system to create a process by which that level of friendship, that engagement in relationship happens all the time. So one more time, text your name to the number at the bottom of your screen. You have got to get into a community group. Why? Because lonely is miserable, lonely is hard, lonely is dangerous, but life is better connected. Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, you're all that we need. That a relationship with your son is all that we need for eternity, to know that we could be with you. But you've wired us in such a way that we need your people here in this life to not only make it more enjoyable, but to make us more like you. So I ask that we'd have the courage to take that step, whether for the first time or for the first time in a while. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.